Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 22nd of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then... Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we are bringing you part one of our holiday spectacular. From Hungary and Brazil to Ukraine and the United States, what did we get right and wrong? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, welcome back. Those of you who have been with us for a while know that this is something of a holiday tradition for us. Every year we make predictions, or those of us who are less fond of making predictions sort of outline what they think could happen in the coming year or what is worth paying attention to. And then at the end of the year, we come back together and we see how we did, holding ourselves accountable as journalists and analysts and people watching the news. Um, So this week, we are going to look back at 2022 and assess what we got wrong. And then next Thursday, back on this very same podcast, we'll be looking ahead to 2023. So, Jeremy, no time like the present. What will you present, get it, to us? Well, in the interest of thoroughness, I did go back and listen to our 2022 predictions episode from the very start of the year. And I've drawn the two judgments that I will assess in this episode from that. One of the striking things about that episode is that the biggest story of the year in world affairs, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We did mention that as a prospect, but kind of in passing during that episode, which I think is just a reminder of how imperfect this predictions business can be. Mm -hmm. But I think still a useful exercise. Now, the first of the predictions that I made in that episode was that China or China's leadership would have its most difficult year since 1989, since the Tiananmen Square massacre. And I think it's hard to argue that that was anything but accurate. I talked in that episode mainly about the Chinese economy. And obviously, that has been part of the the story of difficulty. But obviously, most important to that is the misguided zero COVID strategy pursued by Xi Jinping's regime and the way that it has completely fallen apart. It has obviously undermined growth in a country with 
demographic headwinds and a pre-existing um, crisis in the property sector. Growth this year is expected to be about 3% in China, which would be quite healthy for a, a sort of rich country in Europe or for the United States. But um, for China, it's obviously abysmal growth levels. There have been outright protests against the zero COVID strategy as discussed on, on, on World Review and covered by our colleague Katie. And the year ends with things seeming to go from bad to worse. I mean, just as we record this episode, hospitals in China are overflowing. There is panic buying in Chinese cities. And it's predicted that with the end of the zero COVID strategy in a country that doesn't have much accumulated herd immunity, nor a particularly effective vaccine uh, strategy to date, that there could be as many as a million or more deaths from COVID in China next year. So definitely, I think, correct to say that it's been the most difficult year for the country, and more specifically, its leadership, and it looks like it's going to become only more so in the year to come. Well predicted. All right, Ido, for good reason, I think, does not like making predictions. But you are also, you know, you're an honest young man, who is willing to to hold himself accountable. So what would you say you did not get right at the start of 2022? So I thought that Russia would not invade Ukraine. I thought this prospect of Russia invading Ukraine was outlandish and believed by only sort of the most excitable commentators. But I think this sort of implicit belief showed through in a lot of writing and podcast episode that I was doing in the months before the war even as Russia was mounting troops on its border with Ukraine and preparing to invade. I believe this simply because I thought it would be a strategic catastrophe for Russia. I thought Russia would be able to win militarily, but that its political aims would simply be unachievable. It turns out that I was at least right about its strategic and political aims being unachievable. Um, This has been the biggest disaster Uh, in the history of post-Soviet Russia by some margin, and that was completely right. But I was completely wrong about uh, Russia's capacity to to win the the ability of the Russian military, as I think most of uh, the Western intelligence community, the media, and even lots of people in Ukraine itself believed. I also overestimated how much information and how rational the Russian leadership is. Clearly, Putin and and the people who were making these decisions were going off incredibly flawed information and terrible battle plans and terrible assumptions, which led them to take this catastrophic decision. At the same time, within the world that they inhabit, they are operating as kind of rational actors. They haven't used nuclear weapons. They haven't sort of sought to, to draw in NATO to the conflict, things like that. So within their kind of parameters, and certainly as the war has gone on, and it's become increasingly apparent what a catastrophe it is, they've sort of acted rationally within within the parameters of the world they inhabit, which is, I mean, largely fictional. But yeah, that, that's certainly something that, that I got completely wrong. Emily, you're, you're a Russia watcher. What, what was your judgment this time last year? I thought, I did not think it would be a full-scale invasion. I thought that they might renew their efforts in the East and take it little bit by little bit and and creep further into Ukraine while waiting for Zelensky's popularity to decline. I I did not think that they would go straight for Kyiv. And they did. And I think this was a victory for Western intelligence. Certainly, it was a victory for the Ukrainian people who were predicted to to have lost this thing in three days. And it's been, what, nine, 10 months. But actually, our 
colleague, Katie, who's our China and global affairs editor, her uh, confession to have gotten something wrong also has to do with Russia's war in Ukraine. So we will play that for you now. Hi, gang. This is Katie calling in from the very chilly northern suburbs of D.C., So my moment of the year and also what I most got wrong about this past year was actually the same thing, which was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I certainly thought that a limited offensive focused on the east of the country and the Donbass was possible, even lightly. But why I didn't think that a full-scale invasion was lightly was was really two reasons. Um, The first was just the sheer scale of the military undertaking that it would involve. Ukraine is an absolutely vast country. You know, this is a country that at the start of this year had a population of more than 40 million people. So the idea that, what, close to 200,000 Russian troops could just march in, take it over, install a new administration in Kiev, just looked ridiculous um, and indeed has proved to be impossible. It was also the case that Ukraine had already been fighting a war against Russia since 2014 um, in, in the east of the country. This was a war that had often faded from the international headlines, but in which more than 14,000 people had died over the last eight years. So it was clear to me, particularly as somebody who, who had covered uh, you know, a lot of the, the early years of that war, that Ukraine had been fighting and that Ukraine would fight if it was attacked again by the Russian military. The other major consideration for me was I just didn't understand that Putin would be prepared to risk the Russian economy to the extent that he has done. You know, he was a man who had put so much store, particularly during his first couple of terms in in office, in being the man who had restored stability who had ended the economic chaos of the 1990s. You know, he was the man who built himself as having rebuilt the Russian economy, restored Russia's stature on the world stage. He wanted to be seen as the man who made sure the pensions and the salaries were paid on time. So I had not thought that he would be prepared to risk all of that in the pursuit of, you know, what was clearly a, a personal obsession with Ukraine. You know, this wasn't an issue that there was wide scale, you know, there, there wasn't a clamoring of, of popular support for an invasion of, of Ukraine in Russia. So look, I think the key lesson from this, or one of the key lessons from this for me, and particularly keeping in mind, you know, some of the other countries that I that I focus on, such as China, is to never underestimate the potential for these autocratic leaders, particularly those who have been in power for a very long time, to isolate themselves from good sources of information and to focus, even to obsess, on their own personal legacy and their place in history and to make really catastrophic decisions in pursuit of their own personal ambitions. So I I think it's fair to say that none of us thought I mean, there, there are people out there in the world who thought this, but none of us on this podcast thought that Russia would go as far as it did, that Ukraine would do as well as it has. That's in part because we did not think that Putin's judgments were as unsound as they as they proved to be. And I also think part of it is that we should also note that Ukrainians for weeks leading up to the war seem to also be downplaying the threat of, of an invasion. 
and I know there was a debate here in the United States that was, well, are you saying that U.S. intelligence knows what's going to happen to Ukraine better than Ukrainians? And I think for some, I've spoken to some, you know, Ukrainian Americans about this and how their families didn't didn't leave their homes ahead of time. And basically, they what they said was that nobody nobody wants to admit that their whole life is going to change tomorrow over something they didn't choose for themselves. And I wonder if that that isn't part of it as well. But as Jeremy says, this time last year, it's not as though we weren't already hearing rumblings of the potential of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And yet it was a minor part on our podcast last year. None of us thought that this was going to be the major geopolitical story of 2022. And I think it's it's inarguable that it has been. To your point about what the Ukrainians themselves were expecting. Well, I mean, you were you were in Ukraine. Yeah, I was in I was in Kiev in, in January. And it's interesting because so there was then I think, as you say, scepticism about the idea that Russia was about to launch a full-scale invasion among the Ukrainians, and indeed an indignation among some of those I spoke to that, that U.S. intelligence was talking up the prospect of, of, of that sort of attack because they felt it was, you know, it was undermining the you know, Ukrainian economy to have this constant drumbeat of doom. But where the Ukrainians were absolutely right, and in retrospect, U.S. and U.K. intelligence and others were wrong, was the idea that the country would fall to Russia so quickly. So sort of both got something right. Western intelligence were right that the attack was coming, but the Ukrainians were right that they could hold out more than the three days initially thought. I mean, that was something that struck me very clearly that people said, I don't think it's going to happen, but if it does, they'd be absolutely mad because we are a resilient country and we will fight back and they're not going to take us that easily. And that obviously has been completely borne out. I mean, if you you remember in the the weeks before the invasion, the Germans and the French and to an extent, the Ukrainians were saying, "Oh, we don't think they have the they have the sort of supply lines and the fuel, the fuel supplies and all these sorts of things." That it turned out they sort of didn't really have. Those weren't in place, which is why so many so many troops sort of went in on the Russian side. But then there wasn't any any of the kind of infrastructure that was necessary to actually sustain them, which is why they kept sort of going deep into Kiev, but then having to to retreat because there was no one supporting them and they were running out of fuel and and supplies and all these sorts of things. They were, they were kind of right in a way. They were right that the Russians weren't prepared and that the things that you would expect to be in place for an invasion just weren't there. And it took them a, a long time to adapt if they even did. As you, you know, we saw the, the, the retreat from Kharkiv in September when the Russian forces were exposed to this sort of skeleton force that had, that had very little sort of backing and support to it. Yeah. I had lunch with an MP from Zelensky's party when I was there. And I remember him saying, you'd have to think that Putin was a lot more irrational than I believe he is for him to go ahead with this, which in its own internal logic was correct. He was more irrational than people thought. And that irrationality was borne out on the battlefield. Well, my prediction was not about that. I predicted last year the U.S. Democrats will lose control of the House of Representatives in November. Now, on its face, this is correct. This is what happened. And it was not a hard prediction to make. This happened to Trump. This happened to Obama. Their party lost power in the House. However, I was less right than I thought I would be. Republicans now have a very narrow majority in the House. Democrats have actually expanded their majority in the Senate. Democrats did much better in gubernatorial races across the country than I thought they would. And I think that at the beginning of this year, I underestimated, one, the extent to which abortion would prove to be a motivating factor for Americans, which actually as a as a citizen has been a welcome surprise, right? That, pe- that people actually did remember this and take it to the polls. I also underestimated the extent to which voters would find these Republican characters who were put up in Senate races ridiculous and say, I'm not just voting for you because you're a Republican and I want to check on Democratic power. Like, 
you're absurd. I'm not voting for you to become a U.S. senator. One thing that I think will be worth watching is the Democrats have tried with success so far to, in primaries, sort of boost the more extreme, ridiculous candidate in the hopes that they will have better a better chance of defeating them in the general election. And now, granted, these are still the people who the Republican voters are voting for, but with some Democratic support, either financially or Josh Shapiro, who who's the governor-elect in Pennsylvania, took out an ad in the primary that was specifically targeting Doug Mastriano, who ended up being his Republican competitor, but was not at that time, and who many Republicans, more moderate Republicans, were hoping would lose. And he was accused of trying to like raise Mastriano's profile to be able to run against him. I will be curious to see if Democrats continue to do this. I think it is it has been successful so far, but if you really feel these people are threats to democracy, why are you helping them get one step closer to elected office? That's sort of the constellation that I wasn't fully paying attention to. Yes, Democrats lost the House, but I don't think this was a business as usual. In fact, I know this was not a, a business as usual midterm election. Democrats did much better than they were expected or projected to. Are you surprised at how resilient the Biden presidency has proven to be? Because from my external perspective, it is shaping up to be a not unsuccessful presidency. I mean, we all have our criticisms, of course, Mm -hmm. but I mean, actually, in the grand scheme of things, you know, relative to global circumstances, the state of the American economy, the legislation they've been able to get through, you know, America internationally, I, I would say it's a relatively positive balance so far. I think if you had asked me this time last year, I would have said no, but I think they had a very successful midterms. The thing they managed to do in the midterms was make it not about Biden. Like normally the midterm election is a referendum on the president and the party in power, and it, it, it just wasn't. So it's not even that people across the nation are so in love with Biden, but it's also true that it's not the case that people across the nation hate him, which I actually think is better for American democracy right? To not have it all be about one person all the time. We will see if that, if they're able to continue that. But I think I have a lot of criticisms of the Biden administration. I think they've kept far more of Trump's immigration policy than they sort of hinted they were going to. I think many are frustrated that they haven't gotten far enough in terms of protection for reproductive rights or some student debt cancellation, but not more student debt cancellation. I think People who look at the climate crisis as the existential challenge of our days have said, well, he's not doing enough there. But overall, halfway through, I think he's done more and better than people expected, than I expected at the at the start of this. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Well, that was round one. Jeremy, what is the second prediction that you would like to revisit from the start of this year? So again, this is another one from the uh, start of the year predictions episode. I said, and in fact, you also said, Emily, that the Iran nuclear deal would not be revived or shored up over the course of the year. I'm cheating here. I'm getting an extra, I was right, because Jeremy was also right. Bonus, I was right, yeah. Unfortunately, we were both right about that. You know, the, the talks ran into the ground in Vienna in September. As of November, Iran started enriching uranium again at 60%, which is close to the 90% or closer to the 90% needed to produce nuclear weapons, and far, far above the 4% that was allowed under the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, as it's known, for civilian uses. So that does put Iran closer to so-called nuclear breakout. And I mean, I'm not without wanting to get onto our look ahead to 2023, I think the year ends with Iran's place in you know, the regional order in the Middle East looking rather fragile and and potentially rather unstable for various reasons. First of all, the situation with the nuclear program. Secondly, this new military alliance with Russia, which obviously provides Iran with significant benefits too, in the form of new jets, for example. And then, of course, the protests in Iran, which, however they play out into the next year, where the protesters have chalk up some successes or are pushed back, you can see that feeding into Iranian foreign policy. You know, Iran has in the past sought to detract attention from domestic unrest by stirring up unrest either through its proxies in places like Syria and Iraq and Lebanon or through direct belligerence towards the likes of Saudi Arabia or Israel. Israel, of course, that now has a new hardline government under Netanyahu. So you can see how the ingredients are there one way and the other for this to tip into greater turmoil next year. So I think I think we were both right to be relatively pessimistic about our takes on Iran in 2022. This brings us really nicely to Megan Gibson's What I Got Wrong 
Megan is, for those of you who are not familiar with the characters on, on this team and this podcast, is our team's editor. And here is her self-reflection on the protests in Iran. Hello, World Review listeners. Megan Gibson in London here. It's hard to believe that 2022 is already coming to a close, but here we are. Looking back, the thing I got the most wrong this year was regarding the uprising in Iran. After a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, was killed by Iran's morality police in Tehran in September for allegedly wearing her headscarf incorrectly, the country exploded. Anti-regime protests spread across the country. Many were peaceful, but some were marked by violence. The uprising was largely led by women. Social media was flooded with clips of girls and women pulling off their own headscarves and marching defiantly through the streets. In many of these videos, chants of death to the dictator, a reference to the Islamic Republic's supreme leader, could be heard. But if the anger unleashed by Amini's death was sweeping, so too was the crackdown. Hundreds of civilians have been killed and thousands have been arrested. Two people have been executed by the regime, while dozens more face the death penalty. When I first wrote about the anti-veil protests in early October, I was not optimistic about the prospect of permanent change in the country. The regime has weathered mass protests before, most notably in 2009, during the Green Movement, when millions of Iranians took to the streets following a contested presidential election. Despite the force of those protests, the movement was eventually ground down. The regime won. I pessimistically thought the current protests wouldn't soon meet the same fate. Now, I'm less sure. While it's still entirely possible that the uprising will be quelled, the momentum behind the Iranian people has not subsided. Even if the protests are reined in in 2023, the anger won't be. Okay, well, certainly one to watch in 2023. Ido, what is the second world event on which you would like to reflect? On our um, predictions episode, I said that I thought the French election would show one of the most divided electorates in history. And I said this because although France has an electoral system which nominally means that any winning candidate gains more than 50% of the vote because two candidates go through to the second round from the first round and therefore one has to win uh, more than 50%. In fact, there was an unprecedentedly fractured electorate and high rejection of lots of different candidates. And I think that's essentially been borne out. Macron did win re-election. He, he obviously won, won the election. He faced Marine Le Pen in the second round and won again. But... This was an election, I think, marked by the rejection of those two candidates in particular in the second round more than perhaps any other. And in fact, we, we can see that because for the first time since the presidential and parliamentary elections were scheduled at the same time uh, 20 years ago, an, a recently elected president failed to win a majority in parliament, which indicates that voters were unhappy with him and didn't want him to be put back in the same position and to have these kind of very significant powers that come with holding the presidency and parliament. I just chip in here quickly because I realise my two predictions so far have both been ones that were correct. I did say in the start of the year podcast that I thought the runoff would be between Macron and Valérie Pécresse, which is pretty epic failure given how appallingly she actually did. This was the centre-right candidate. So I, I, I will cite that as a, as a nod towards modesty. 
in this in, in this episode. In some self self justification, that was where the polls were, were pointing at the time. But it just goes to show precisely what you just said: the the volatility of French politics. You know, we went through a period earlier early on in the autumn. 2021, where it was all about Zemmour and Zemmour sort of eclipsing Le Pen on the hard right. Then it looked like Pécresse would be the new, the French Merkel or whatever it was. Then, of course, Le Pen sort of swept forward again and, and indeed then did even better relative to expectations in the parliamentary elections. So huge volatility in France. I think we're so kind of scarred by like Brexit and Trump that we're, we're so loath to say the polls can be right and the conventional wisdom can basically be right. But like sometimes the conventional wisdom just is right. And especially in the context of the timing of the French election, which was, I think, about two months after Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, people wanted stability. They wanted someone they knew. They didn't want any kind of kind of experimenter, you know, it's the Adenauer slogan. They didn't want to change things. And like sometimes the conventional wisdom just basically is right, but we're, we're so low to say that, we're so scarred, but that's not to say that it's necessarily always wrong. Emily, what was, what's your final thing you got right or wrong this year? Well, mine is also about elections. Um, I had said that Bolsonaro would lose to Lula in Brazil and that Orban would win again in Hungary. These were both right. And the reason that I'm lumping them both in together is not to show that like, I'm so smart. But I think when it comes to far-right political figures. To, to me, obviously, there are many differences between Brazil and Hungary. I don't mean to imply that they're the same. But to me, it suggests that to get a far right figure out of office earlier is, is better than later. The prediction that I wrote about Orban was that at this point in time, I wrote, in Hungary's spring election in 2022, the opposition is up against not just a man, but a system over which Orban and his Fidesz party control more and more. I think the system will hold. And I think that that did happen. And that's not to say that he doesn't have genuine popular support. But once power is entrenched, it's harder to get rid of it. Having said that, Orban was elected, was was voted out of power once before and came back. So Brazilians who have fended off the far right for now, I think, cannot rest easy. Well, actually, one of the things that brings together several of the points we've talked about in this episode is of a year in which the disadvantages of autocratic systems without checks and balances were illustrated quite forcefully which, of course, is not the same thing as saying that liberal democracy is having some great international comeback. Take the example of Hungary. We could talk about others. But I think that, you know, whether we're talking about the failures of Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, whether we're talking about zero COVID in China, whether we're talking about uh, Bolsonaro and the way that he was made to pay for his abysmal record as Brazil's president, you know, we did see systems or regimes that were reliant, over-reliant on an individual or with too few systematic checks or safety valves coming to learn the error of their ways. We could also talk about certain examples in the uh, private sector, overpowerful uh, CEOs overstepping the mark and, and learning the hard way. Particularly as 2021 was a year where many really despaired about the state of liberal democracy and the liberal international order and the West for good reason, you know, because it was a year that began with the January the 6th storming of the capital. We had the, the debacle of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. 2022 was a year that showed that, yes, democracies face huge challenges and, you know, we're no longer in the 1990s, but also that autocracies have their failings too in a very big way. I think it's a year that should leave us with a nuanced sense of where the balance of power is internationally and of the contest between systems. Absolutely. Okay, well, those are our rights and wrongs revisited. We will be back next week with my annual holiday surprise and more, an actual 
news content. But Ido, for now, will you please get us out of here? If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please do leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.